Uvula Audio presents Volume 4 of The Sea Fairies. Chapter 7 The Aristocratic Codfish. The three swam slowly along, quite enjoying the cool depths of the water. Every little while they met with some strange creature, or one that seemed strange to the Earth people. For although Trot and Captain Bill had seen many kinds of fish, after they had been caught and pulled from the water, that was very different from meeting them in their own element, face to face, as Trot expressed it. Now that the various fishes were swimming around free and unafraid in their deep-sea home, they were quite different from the gasping, excited creatures struggling at the end of a fishing line or flapping from a net. Before long they came upon a group of large fishes lying lazily near the bottom of the sea. They were a dark color upon their backs and silver underneath, but not especially pretty to look at. The fishes made no effort to get out of Merla's way and remained motionless, except for the gentle motion of their fins and gills. Here, said the mermaid, pausing, is the most aristocratic family of fish in all the sea. What are they? asked the girl. Codfish, was the reply. Their only fault is that they are too haughty and foolishly proud of their pedigree. Overhearing the speech, one codfish said to another in a very dignified tone of voice, "'What insolence!' "'Isn't it, though?' replied the other. "'There ought to be a law to prevent these common mermaids from discussing their superiors.' "'My sakes!' said Trot, astonished. "'How stuck up they are, aren't they?' For a moment the group of fishes stared at her solemnly. Then one of them remarked in a disdainful manner, "'Come, my dears, let's leave these vulgar creatures.' "'I'm not as vulgar as you are!' exclaimed Trot, much offended by this speech. "'Where I come from, we only eat codfish when there's nothing else in the house to eat!' "'How absurd!' observed one of the creatures arrogantly. "'Eat codfish, indeed!' said another in a lofty manner. "'Yes, and you're pretty salty, too, I can tell you. At home, you're nothing but a pickup!' said Trot. "'Dear me!' exclaimed the first fish that had spoken. "'Must we stand this insulting language "'and from a person to whom we've never even been introduced?' "'I don't need any introduction,' replied the girl. "'I've eaten you, and you always make me thirsty.' "'Merla laughed merrily at this, "'and the codfish said with much dignity, "'Come, fellow aristocrats, let us go.' "'Never mind.' "'We're going ourselves,' announced Merla, and followed by her guests, the pretty mermaid swam away. "'I've heard tell of codfish aristocracy,' said Cap'n Bill, "'but I've never known exactly what it meant before.' "'Well, they just made me mad with all their airs,' observed Trot. "'So I gave them a piece of my mind.' "'You surely did, mate,' said the sailor. "'But I ain't sure they understand what they're like "'when they're salted and hung up in the pantry. "'Folks generally get stuck up "'cause they don't know themselves like other folks know em. "'We're near Crabville now,' declared Merla. "'Shall we visit the crabs and see what they're doing?' "'Yes, let's,' replied Trot. "'The crabs are lots of fun. "'I've often caught them among the rocks on the shore "'and laughed at the way they act.' 
Wasn't it funny at dinner-time to see the way they slid around with the plates? Those were not crabs, but lobsters and crawfish, remarked the mermaid. They are very intelligent creatures, and by making them serve us we save ourselves much household work. Of course they are awkward and provoke us sometimes, but no servants are perfect, it said, so we get along with ours as well as we can. They were all right, protested the child, even if they did tip things over every once in a while. But it's easy to work in a sea palace, I'm sure, because there's no dusting or sweeping to be done. Or scrubbing, added Captain Bill. The crabs, said Merla, are second cousins to the lobsters, although much smaller in size. There are many families or varieties of crabs, and so many of them live in one place near here that we call Crabville. I think you'll enjoy seeing these little creatures in their native haunts. They now approached a kelp bed, the straight, thin stems of the kelp running far upward to the surface of the water. Here and there upon the stalks were leaves, but Trot thought the growing kelp looked much like sticks of macaroni, except that they were a rich red-brown in color. It was beyond the kelp, which they had to push aside as they swam through it, so thickly did it grow, that they came to a higher level, a sort of plateau on the ocean's bottom. It was covered with scattered rocks of all sizes, which appeared to have broken off from big shelving rocks that they had observed nearby. The place they entered seemed like one of the rocky canyons you often see upon the earth. Here live the fiddler crabs, said Merla. But we must have taken them by surprise. It's so quiet now. Even as she spoke, there was a stirring and scrambling among the rocks, and soon scores of light green crabs were gathered before the visitors. The crabs wore fiddles of all sorts and shapes in their claws, and one big fellow carried a leader's baton. The latter crab climbed upon a flat rock, and in an excited voice called out, "'Ready now, good fiddlers, we'll play number nineteen, hail to the mermaids, and the ready, and the take aim, and the fire away!' At this command, every crab began scraping his fiddle as hard as he could, and the sounds were so shrill and unmusical that Trot wondered when they would begin to play tune. But they never did. It was one regular mix-up of sounds from the beginning to the end. When the noise finally stopped, the leader turned to his visitors, and waving his baton toward them, asked, "'Well, what do you think of that?' "'Not much.' said Trot honestly. "'What's it all about?' "'I composed it myself,' said the fiddler crab. "'But it's highly classical, I admit. "'All really great music is an acquired taste.' "'I don't like it,' remarked Captain Bill. "'It might do all right to stir up a rocket New Year's Eve, "'but to call that screeching music!' Just then the crab started fiddling again, harder than ever. And as it promised to be a long performance, they left the little creatures scraping away at their fiddles as if for dear life, and swam along the rocky canyon until, on turning a corner, they came upon a new and different scene. There were crabs here too, many of them, and they were performing the queerest antics imaginable. Some were building themselves into a pyramid, each standing on edge with the biggest and strongest ones on the bottom. When the crabs were five or six rows high, they would all tumble over, still clinging to one another, 
and having reached the ground, they would separate and commence to build the pyramid over again. Others were chasing one another around in a circle, always moving backwards or sideways, and trying to play leapfrog as they went. Still others were swinging on slight branches of seaweed, or turning cartwheels, or indulging in similar antics. Merla and the earth people watched the busy little creatures for some time before they were themselves observed, but finally Trot gave a laugh when one crab fell on its back and began frantically waving its legs to get right side up again. At the sound of her laughter they all stopped their play and came toward the visitor in a flock, looking up at them with their bright eyes in a most comical way. "'Welcome home!' cried one as he turned a back somersault and knocked another crab over. "'What's the difference between a mermaid and a tadpole?' asked another in a loud voice, and without a pause continued, "'Why, one drops its tail and the other holds on to it! Ha! 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 These,' said Merla, "'are the clown crabs. They are very silly, as you may already have discovered. But—' For a short time they're rather amusing. One tires of them very soon. They're funny, said Trot, laughing again. It's almost as good as a circus. I don't think they would make me tired, but then again I'm not a mermaid. The clown crabs had now formed a row in front of them. Mr. Johnson, asked one, why is a mermaid like an automobile? I don't know, Tommy Blimkin answered a big crab in the middle row. Why do you think a mermaid is like an automobile? Because they both get tired, said Tommy Blimkin. Then all the crabs laughed, and Tommy seemed to laugh louder than the rest. How do the crabs in the sea know anything about automobiles? asked Trot. Why, Tommy Blimkin and Harry Hustle were both captured once by humans and put in an aquarium answered the mermaid. But one day they climbed out and escaped, finally making their way back to the sea and home again. So they are quite traveled, you see, and great favorites among the crabs. While they were on land, they saw a great many curious things, and so, I suppose, they saw automobiles. We did, we did, said Harry Hustle, an awkward crab with one big claw and one little one. And we saw earth people with legs. Awfully funny they was. And animals called horses with legs. And other creatures with legs. And people cover themselves with the queerest things. They even wear feathers and flowers on their heads. And we know all about that, said Trot. We live on the earth ourselves. Well, you're lucky to get off it from time to time and into the good water, said the crab. I nearly died on the earth. It was so stupid and dry and airy. But the circus was great. They held the performance right in front of the aquarium where we lived. And Tommy and I learned all the tricks of the tumblers. Come on, fellas. Show the earth people what you can do. At this, the crabs began performing their antics again. But they did the same things over and over again. So Cap'n Bill and Trot soon tired as Merla said they would, and decided they had seen enough of the crab circus. So they proceeded to swim farther up the rocky canyon, and near its upper end, they came to a lot of conch shells lying upon the sandy bottom. 
A funny-looking crab was sticking his head out from each of these shells. These are the hermit crabs, said one of the mermaids. They steal these shells and live in them, so no enemies can attack them. Don't they get lonesome? asked Trot. Perhaps so, my dear, but they do not seem to mind being lonesome. They are great cowards, and think if they can but protect their lives, there is nothing else to care for. Unlike the jolly crabs we have just left, the hermits are really cross and unsociable. Eh, keep quiet and go away, said one of the hermit crabs in a grumpy voice. No one wants mermaids around here. Then every crab withdrew its head into its shell, and our friends saw them no more. They're not very polite, observed Trot, following the mermaid, as Merla swam upward into the middle water. I know now why cross people are called crabby, said Captain Bill. They've got dispositions just like these here hermit crabs. Presently they came upon a small flock of mackerel, and noticed that the fishes seemed much excited. When they saw the mermaids, they cried out, Oh, Merla, what do you think? Our flippity has just gone to glory. When? asked the mermaid. Just now, one replied. We were lying in the water, talking quietly together, when a spinning, shining thing came along, and our dear flippity ate it. Then he went shooting up to the top of the water, gave a flop, and went to glory. Isn't that splendid, Merla? Poor Flippity, sighed the mermaid. I'm sorry, for he was the prettiest and nicest mackerel in your whole flock. What does that mean? asked Trot. How did Flippity go to glory? Why, well, he was caught by a hook and pulled out of the water into some boat, Merla explained. But these poor stupid creatures do not understand that, and when one of them is jerked out of the water and disappears, they have an idea he's gone to glory, which means to them some unknown but beautiful sea. I've often wondered, said Trot, why fishes are foolish enough to bite on hooks. They must know enough to know their hooks, added Captain Bill musingly. Oh, they certainly do, replied Merla. I've seen fishes gather around a hook and look at it carefully for a long time. They well know it's a hook, and that if they bite the bait upon it, they'll be pulled out of the water. But they're curious to know what will happen to them afterwards, and think it means happiness instead of death. So, finally, one takes the hook and disappears, and the others never know what becomes of him. Why don't you tell them the truth? asked Trot. Oh, we do. The mermaids have warned them many times, but it does no good at all. Fish are stupid creatures. But I wish I was flippity, said one of the mackerel, staring at Trot with his big round eyes. He went to glory before I could eat the hook myself. You're lucky, answered the child. Flippity will be in someone's frying pan for dinner. You wouldn't like that, would you? Flippity has gone to glory, said another, and then they swam away in haste to tell the news to all they met. I've never heard of anything so foolish, remarked Trot, as they swam slowly on through the clear blue water. Yes, it is very foolish and very sad, answered Merla. 
but if the fishes were wise, men could not catch them for food, and many poor people on your earth make their living by fishing. It seems wicked to catch such pretty things, said the child. Oh, I don't think so, replied Merla laughingly, for they were born to become food for someone, and men are not the only ones who eat fishes. Many creatures of the sea feed upon them. They even eat one another at times, and if none was ever destroyed, they would soon become so numerous they would clog the waters of the ocean and leave no room for the rest of us. So after all, perhaps it's just as well that they are so faultless and foolish. Presently they came to some round balls that looked very much like balloons in shape and were gaily colored. They floated quietly in the water, and Trot inquired what they were. Balloon fish, answered Merla. They are helpless creatures, but have little spikes all over them, so their enemies dare not bite them for fear of getting pricked. Trot found the balloon fish quite interesting. They had little dots of eyes and dots for mouths. But she could see no noses, and their fins and tails were very small. They catch these fish in the South Sea Islands and make lanterns of them, said Captain Bill. They first skin them and sew the skin up again to let it dry. Then they put candles inside, and the light shines through the dried skin. Many other curious sights they saw in the ocean that afternoon, and both Captain Bill and Trot thoroughly enjoyed their glimpse of sea life. At last, Merla said it was time to return to the palace, from which she claimed they had not at any time been very far distant. We must prepare for dinner, as it will soon begin to grow dark in the water, continued their conductor. So they swam leisurely back to the groves that surrounded the palaces, and as they entered the gardens, the sun sank, and deep shadows began to form in the ocean depths. Chapter 8 a BANQUET UNDER WATER The palaces of the mermaids were all aglow with lights as they approached them, and Trot was amazed at the sight. "'Where did the lamps come from?' she asked their guide wonderingly. "'They're not lamps, my dear,' replied Merla, much amused at this suggestion. "'We use electric lights in our palaces, have done so for thousands of years, long before the earth people knew of electric lights.' "'But where do you get them from?' inquired Captain Bill, who was very much astonished as the girl. "'From a transparent jellyfish which naturally emits a strong and beautiful electric light,' was the answer. "'We have many hundreds of them in our palaces, as you will presently see.' Their way was now lighted by small phosphorescent creatures scattered about the sea gardens, which Merla informed them were hyalea, or sea glowworms but their light was dim when compared to that of the electric jellyfish, which they found placed in clusters upon the ceilings of all the rooms of the palaces, rendering them as light as day. Trot watched these curious creatures with delight, for delicately colored lights ran about their bodies in every direction in a continuous stream, shedding splendid rays throughout the vast halls. A group of mermaids met the visitors in the hall of the main palace and told Merla the queen had instructed them to show the guests to their rooms as soon as they arrived. So Trot followed two of them through several passages, after which they swam upward and entered a circular opening. There were no stairs here because there was no need of them, 
and the little girl soon found herself in an upper room that was very beautiful indeed. All the walls were covered with iridescent shells, polished till they resembled mother-of-pearl, and upon the glass ceiling were clusters of brilliant electric jellyfish, rendering the room bright and cheerful with their radiance. In one corner stood a couch of white coral, with gossamer draperies floating around it from four high posts. Upon examining it, the child found the couch was covered with soft amber sponges, which rendered it very comfortable to lie upon. In a wardrobe she found several beautiful gossamer gowns, richly embroidered in colored seaweeds, and these Mary was told she might wear while she remained the guest of the mermaids. She also found a toilet table with brushes, combs, and other conveniences, all of which were made of polished tortoise shell. Really, the room was more dainty and comfortable than one might suppose possible in a palace far beneath the surface of the sea, and Trot was greatly delighted with her new quarters. The mermaid attendants assisted the child to dress herself in one of the prettiest robes, which she found to be quite dry and fitted perfectly. Then the mermaids brushed and dressed her hair and tied it with ribbons of cherry-red seaweed. Finally, they placed around her neck a string of pearls that would have been priceless upon the earth, and now the little girl announced she was ready for supper and had a good appetite. Captain Bill had been given a similar room near Trot's, but the old sailor refused to change his clothes for any others offered him, for which reason he was ready for supper long before his comrade. "'What bothers me, mate?' he said to the little girl as they swam toward the great banquet hall where Queen Aqua Rain awaited them. "'Is why we ain't crushed by the pressing of the water against us, being as we're down here in the deep of the sea.' "'How's that, Captain? Why should we be crushed?' she asked. "'Why, everyone knows that the deeper you go in the sea, the more water presses against you,' he explained. "'Even the divers in their steel jackets can't stand it very deep down. "'And here we be, miles from the top of the water, I expect, and we don't feel a bit crowded.' "'I know why,' answered the child wisely. "'The water doesn't touch us, you see. "'If it did, it might crush us. "'But it don't. "'It's always held a little way off from our bodies by the magic of the fairy mermaids.' "'True enough, Trot.' declared the sailor man. What an idiot I was not to think of that myself. In the royal banquet hall were assembled many of the mermaids, headed by the lovely queen, and as soon as their earth guests arrived, Aqua Rain ordered the meal to be served. The lobsters again waited upon the table, wearing little white caps and aprons, which made them look very funny. But Trot was so hungry after her afternoon's excursion that she did not pay as much attention to the lobsters as she did to her supper, which was very delicious and consisted of many courses. A lobster spilled some soup on Captain Bill's bald head, who had not expected it, but the queen apologized very sweetly for the awkwardness of her servants, and the sailor soon forgot all about the incident in his enjoyment of the meal. After the feast ended, they all went to the big reception room where some of the mermaids played upon harps while others sang pretty songs. They danced together, too, a graceful swimming dance, so queer to the little girl that it interested and amused her greatly. Captain Bill seemed a bit bashful among so many beautiful mermaids, yet he was pleased when the queen offered him a place beside her throne, 
where he could see and hear all the delightful entertainment provided for the royal guests. He did not talk too much, being a man of few words, except when alone with Trot, but his light blue eyes were big and round with wonder at the sights he saw. Trot and the sailor man went to bed early, and slept soundly upon their sponge-covered couches. The little girl never wakened until long after the sun was shining down through the glass roof of her room, and when she opened her eyes, she was startled to find a number of big, small, and middle-sized fishes staring at her through the glass. "'That's one bad thing about this mermaid palace,' she said to herself. "'It's too public. Everything in the sea can look at you through the glass as much as it likes. I wouldn't mind fishes looking at me if they hadn't such big eyes and—' "'Goodness me! There's a monster that's all head! "'And there goes a fish with a sail on its back, "'and here's old Mummer Cumble. "'I'm sure, for he's got a head just like a pig!' "'She might have watched the fishes on the roof for hours, "'had she not remembered it was late and breakfast must be ready. "'So she dressed and made her toilet "'and swam down into the palace "'to find Captain Bill and the mermaids "'politely waiting for her to join them. "'The sea maidens were as fresh and lovely as ever.' while each and all proved sweet-tempered and merry, even at the breakfast table, and that is where people are cross if they ever are. During the meal, the queen said, I shall take you this morning to the most interesting part of the ocean, where the largest and most remarkable sea creatures live. We must visit King Anko, too, for the sea serpent would feel hurt and slighted if I did not bring my guest to call upon him. "'That will be nice,' said Trot eagerly, but Cap'n Bill asked, "'Is there any danger, ma'am?' "'I think not,' replied Queen Ocarine. "'I cannot see that you will be exposed to any danger at all, so long as I am with you. "'But we are going into the neighborhood of some fierce and even terrible beings, "'which would attack you at once did they suspect you of being earth people. "'So in order to guard your safety,' I intend to draw the magic circle about you both before we start. What's the magic circle? asked Trot. A fairy charm that prevents any enemy from touching you. No monster of the sea, however powerful, will be able to reach your body once you are protected by the magic circle, declared the queen. Oh, then I'll not be a bit afraid, returned the child with perfect confidence. "'Am I to have a magic circle drawn about me, too?' asked Captain Bill. "'Of course,' answered Aqua Rain. "'You will need no other protection than that. "'Yet Princess Clea and I will both be with you, "'for today I shall leave Merla to rule our palaces in my place until we return.' "'No sooner was breakfast finished than Trot was anxious to start. "'The girl was also curious to discover what the powerful magic circle might prove to be.' But she was a little disappointed in the ceremony. The queen merely grasped her fairy wand in her right hand, swam around the child in a circle from left to right. Then she took her wand in her left hand and swam around Trot in another circle from right to left. Now, my dear, she said, you are safe from any creature we are liable to meet. She performed the same ceremony for Captain Bill, who was doubtful about the magic circle because he felt the same after as he had before. But he said nothing of his unbelief, and soon they left the palace and started upon their journey.